Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Cattle Baron Cigars. Cattle Baron Cigars has a rich, natural, aromatic, classic tobacco flavor. Made with the finest tobacco, perfectly blended for the most pleasant, satisfying, long ash you can buy anywhere. Cattle Baron Cigars has consistently scored an excellent in the 90s on their reviews. For more in-depth information on Cattle Baron Cigars, listen to our Brian Mussard podcast episode and visit cattlebaroncigars.com. Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. Welcome back to another episode of Brands and Barbed Wire. Today we have a fun episode for you. I'm joined by two enthusiastic young researchers from the University of Tennessee, and we discuss some interesting research they are doing on eye tracking software and its practical application in the beef industry. I think you're really going to enjoy listening to Dr. Charlie Martinez and Dr. Troy Rowan as we discuss eye tracking software. Charlie and Troy, welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. Thanks for having us, Jim. Good to be here. Yeah. So for the folks that are listening that might not know who you guys are, why don't you give us a little bit of background, um, family history in, in the cattle business, and, and then what brought you to, uh, to the University of Tennessee? So my name is Charlie Martinez. Uh, uh, I'm a, an assistant professor and extension specialist here at the University of Tennessee. I'm, a, I guess, a born-again Tennessean. Uh, I grew up 30 minutes south of Dallas and graduated from Paris High School in, in 2010. And uh, kind of how how I got involved in the in the ag business or in the ag industry uh, kind of goes back to my 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 grandfather. Uh, he grew up on a dairy farm in in Buck Creek, Indiana, and then uh, through the Air Force and stuff, he ended up back in Texas and was in a town called uh, Mesquite, Texas, and and always had cattle around. And my dad always had uh, some cattle around as well, and they would tinker with them and. You know, nothing uh, to, you know, to write home about it was just basically something to play with in terms of having cows there to mow down the yard and or mow down the pasture and then do just take whatever the, the cell barn kind of gave you. And then, um, you know, as I got older and started becoming active in 4-H and FFA, we started getting into the Simmental business. And I had some cousins that were raising purebreds. And one year I was saying, hey, I want to do a steer. And so uh, they were like, "Hey, we have one. Do you want to do you want to raise it up and see what happens?" I said, "Yeah." So I did that, and I know uh, there was a you know the author of the Cash Cow was on here, and he kind of talked about how the show industry is a little bit of a drug. And so uh, when I got into the show side of things, that's when it really took off with me in terms of um, being active around cattle and going to shows and kind of putting fishing and hunting to the side. I still did baseball and stuff of that nature growing up, but. Uh, the cattle side uh, really started taking off from there. And then I got really active in the Texas Junior Junior Simmental Sembra Association uh, as a junior. And I also participated in the in the national classics and the regional classics uh, with the American Junior Simmental Association. And uh, that kind of really, you know, 
piqued my interest in agriculture. I knew I wasn't going to be a veterinarian. I was not good at chemistry or science or anything like that. And so I was like, well, what else is out there? And so uh, kind of grew up, you know, wanting to play baseball somewhere. And so I was like, well, maybe, you know, Ain't of Kingsville is the place to go. And so went there in, in hopes of becoming the next Pudge Rodriguez. And that fell flat on his face. And while I was there, I had a professor there uh, named Randy Stanko, who was the livestock judging coach. And, and he was saying, hey, you know, you know, you can, if you want to do livestock judging here, we can do that. And, um, and so that was something that I had done a little bit here and there in 4-H and FFA and with all the other junior programs. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, fast forward, you know, the, the four years there at AM Kingsville, I did meat judging and livestock judging. I worked in the meat lab there for a little over three years for Dr. Tanner Machado. And, um, and then in the meantime, at, in the summers, you'd have internships. And so I worked uh, with Cargill Cattle Feeders in Bovina, Texas for two summers. And then I worked another summer with Rio Beef Feed Yard deep in South Texas in Raymondville, Texas. And so I saw, uh, you know, a large scale feed yard operation. Uh, to, I think Cargill at that time at, at Bovina was a 60,000 capacity head yard. And then in, in Rio Beef, it was much smaller. I think it was 16,000 head or around there approximately in, in terms of capacity, one-time capacity. Following my undergrad career, uh, I had a job offer from Cargill to go back as a kind of a, what they call it, I believe it was a management associate to to go back and learn how to become a manager within the feed yard or you know a manager within one of the divisions in a feed yard. And at the time, uh, my girlfriend was like, "I'm not going to live in Bovina, Texas. There's you know more people in a, in one of my classrooms than there are in Bovina, Texas." And I said, "Well, that's not going to work." And so. Uh, I decided I wanted to go to Texas A&M. Um, I had always been intrigued by um, how how the markets work, the price that people receive. How how does that you know the accumulation of that price? What goes into that? And you know we we've seen stuff you know growing up with my family and kind of just taking whatever the sale barn gave you. And then I saw how Cargill and and you know feed yards operated and kind of the different philosophies. And then. Uh, working in the meat lab with uh, with Dr. Machado there, and it was just like there's all these prices that interact with each other that was very really interesting to me. And uh, at A and M, there's a professor there. He's still there. Uh, he's the livestock economist, Dr. David Anderson. And I had seen him as a as a junior when I was still in high school. I saw him present at an extension event, and I thought he you know was really thoughtful and uh, really cool. And I you know and during my time in undergrad, I was like, hey, you know. Um, yeah, you know, I would still see him around at different conferences and stuff. And and so I said, well, you know, what if I could get under him and kind of learn from him? And so I went to A&M uh, as a master's student. After one year, I got switched over to a straight through program. And so I was put under uh, him and another person named Dr. John Park and uh, learned the ropes, uh, you know, the livestock and the meat side of things through uh, Dr. Anderson and some of the ag agribusiness side with Dr. John Park. And from there on out, growing up and seeing all different ways and all experiences that I had, seeing how the markets all interact and being trained by Dr. Anderson uh, really uh, allowed me to land here at, at, at the University of Tennessee straight out of uh, grad school. And, you know, and so that's, you know, I, I'm an economist by day, still a faux show cattle person by night. And uh, we still have cattle back home. But uh, throughout my undergrad career, the girl I mentioned, uh, that did not want to go back to Bovina, Texas. She's now my wife, and we have two kids, uh, Remington and Henry. And uh, and she grew up in the Simbrals, uh, showing Simbrals, and was also active in the TGSSA. And she was one of the ones that was always winning. And so I said, if I can't beat him, I'll marry him. 
Uh, and so we still run cattle together as a family uh, back in deep South Texas. Just in, it's a town called Edinburgh or just North Edinburgh in Lynn, Texas, which is about 25, 30 minutes north of, of Mexico. And, uh, you know, the background and kind of seeing how they've done things uh, throughout throughout history has been inter- interesting to see as well. They, they're they an operation that goes back to, uh, to the early 1900s, and they've constantly been switching breeds between Brahmins and um, maybe some commercial type mixes and then to Simbras. And when I come along, we infuse a little bit more Sim genetics, uh, you know, fresh Simi genetics into the herd. But you know, the operation itself is is very different in terms of what we have to go through with drought and uh, going to school. It was always, you know, uh, when does drought hit? And, and in South Texas, it's not a matter of uh, when drought hits, but how long it's going to hang around. And so uh, the perspective on all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, was very different than the experiences that I had uh, growing up, you know, just kind of, you know, having commercial animals and, and seeing where, you know, what happened. And so, um, you know, I guess from accumulation of, of many different experiences is uh, for me kind of leaves me as an oddball in the ag econ world because, uh, you know, I do consider myself a beef kid and a livestock person that also uh, has the econ background now. And uh, for me, it makes my job, uh, you know, a lot of fun to work with folks like uh, Troy here and, and other folks we have here at UT. And and I think that's what kind of makes us valuable here at UT. And, you know, Troy will, you know, talk, you know, introduce himself here in a second, but the backgrounds and experiences that we all have here is what I think makes us really unique. All right, good. And uh, you were saying a little bit beforehand that you're a golf fan. Big golf fan. Uh, I know this makes for great podcasting, but behind me, uh, I have a lot of different flags that are from different majors. And uh, there's just something about uh, being willing to go lose many of balls at a golf course and still finding it fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that. I've got to play in one this this weekend, so uh, so maybe I should have invited you to to help me out. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Troy. Yeah, Jim. So uh, I guess I grew up in in Southwest Iowa is where home is. Um, my family, both on on my dad's and mom's side, have have been there since about the the turn of the century. So um, just sort of multi generational farmers. Um, a lot of them sort of started here in in Tennessee, Virginia, Appalachia, um, and moved west until they they found black dirt. And thank goodness they stopped right where they did um, and and didn't necessarily keep going. But uh, but yeah. So so I guess both my my parents would have grown up on on really diversified um, crop livestock um, operations. So uh, some beef cattle, milked a handful of dairy cows, um, had pigs. Um, in, in some sizable row cropping operations, uh, we're right in the south, southern tier of those Iowa counties where it's, it's not responsible to, to farm every square inch, I guess. So, um, there was a, there was a place for, for beef cattle there. And, and I guess my, my dad was sort of my, my gateway into the, into the beef industry. So he is a, is a 4 H'er got really, really involved in, um, in breeding his own show cattle. He was AI certified, um, by the time he was 16 and, and, convinced his dad to sort of turn the herd over to him and and did some really innovative work there um, in the late 70s, I guess, um, bringing Simmental into into my grandpa's just sort of traditional uh, commercial beef herd, I guess, um, would have been mostly British animals. Um, but dad brought some some Simmental in there, a couple county uh, county fair show winners. And and he was he was sort of bit by the beef bug and, and loved the industry so much. He ended up going to Northwest Missouri State, um, and this this all leads to me eventually, right? Uh, but Northwest Missouri State, 
um, just over the the border on the Missouri side of things, um, where he was an animal science major, and and met Joe Garrett, who would would go on to be the the exec at the Charlet Association, um, right as my dad was was sort of graduating at at Northwest Missouri. Uh, Joe, right off the bat, offered dad a job to to be one of the field reps for the Charlet Association. Uh, my dad was, you know, he's 22 or 23 years old, right? Had a company card, um, a car, and in a love of the the beef industry. So he he ran the roads from from Iowa to the East Coast. Um, so right in in your area there, Jim, he would have been um, one of the field reps uh, from about 83, I guess, until 93 when I was born. So um, that was our our family's our, our family's way into the Charlet industry. Um, dad was uh, again all up and down the the East Coast, Ohio, and Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, um, looking at Charlotte cattle and, and really, I guess that's where, that's where my love of cattle comes from is, is dad's entry into the, the Charlotte business back then. So, um, eventually he, he figured out that he could have a few cows at home, um, and had a, a really great wife, um, my mom, Teresa, who is, uh, who was able to take care of those while he was gone um, on the running the roads as a field man. But um, so we ended up with a, a small Charlet operation uh, right around, you know, 40, 50 cows, um, which, you know, is, is just enough to, to make some really good ones. So um, we were, were fortunate growing up to, to be around the, the Charlet breed. Um, a number of people that, that I have interacted with um, throughout my, my early career, I guess, um, before I, I ended up where I am now. But uh, Brent Thiel, um, our cow herd is, is really heavy Thiel-based cows. We cooperated with Brent for a long time. Um, and so some of my really formative memories are, are sitting in a truck with, with Dad and Brent Thiel and, and looking at those perfect cows up in West River, South Dakota. Um, and and the, the Heberts in, in Western Nebraska sold me my first cows. Um, that I brought in from outside. So, so the late Dave Hebert and and his wife Mickey, um, my very favorite people on the planet. That I think um, that they just really stimulated my my love of the industry. They asked Dave would ask me the hard questions. You know, we'd sort through bulls together, and and even as a twelve year old, right, the sort of person that just makes you feel um, like you like you know something, and that your opinion is worth something. So whether or not I knew anything. Um, Dave Hebert would would sit down and, and ask me about it. So uh, again, I think all of that sort of uh, built up this this really deep love of of the beef industry of of Charlet cattle. And in the the other way, I guess the way that I ended up a, a geneticist probably is is my dad was an ABS rep growing up. Um, so I I rode a lot of miles around Iowa and Missouri as we were were breeding cows. And and again, I was a little nerd, right? So I had the had the ABS um, ABS book open. I had stud codes memorized. I had EPDs memorized. I mean, this is the 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 eight seventy eight in focus era of ABS, um, and we were we were breeding a lot of cows, and and I was just enthralled with the um, with the statistical side of things. Um, and, and I think that that sort of bled through and, and that's what I get to, to wake up and, and think about every day, um, in my, in my current position. But I guess my path to where I'm at right now. So I'm a, an assistant professor and extension specialist, uh, here at the University of Tennessee. Um, but I, I took a little bit of a, um, I zigged a little bit. And right after high school, I, um, I thought that I wanted to be a human medical doctor. Um, my mom is in healthcare. Uh, she's a she's a pharmacist, and and so I thought that I wanted to do the human medical doctor thing. 
um, and actually ended up going to Creighton University in Omaha, um, a, a great basketball school, um, an awesome school. If you want to be a, um, a medical doctor, their pre-med program's awesome. So I ended up with a, a biology degree there and a, a business minor from Creighton. But I, I figured out, you know, about a year and a half in, um, I'm not saying that that perfectly coincides with organic chemistry, but um, correlation's not causation, but but pretty close there. So um, realized that 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 human medicine probably wasn't my, wasn't my jam. And, and honestly, I was, I was starting to miss the cows pretty, um, pretty bad. I wasn't able to, um, to be thinking about that every day in the way that I was as a, as a high schooler when I was, was, was out with the cows and, and doing stuff. So I started sort of evaluating my, my options there. Um, I had in the process gotten bitten by the research bug. So, um, I got into a couple of really good undergraduate research labs there at Creighton that got me excited about research um, but I had a really, really hard time getting excited about, you know, bacterially infecting some random plant species, right? So I needed, I needed that application back. I needed to get back to cows, and and so made a couple calls uh, to people that I knew were were in the academic world in in the animal sciences. Uh, Cliff Lamb, in particular, who's I guess now the department head at A and M. Um, I had sent an email to Cliff and asked Cliff, I'm interested in, you know, doing something animal science related for graduate school. Should I do repro genomics or or nutrition? And he said, well, definitely don't do nutrition. He's like, and I don't know. I, I love repro, obviously, but um, you might think about genomics and gave me three or four names. Um, one of those names was was Jerry Taylor um, at the University of Missouri, one of the the giants in the, the beef cattle genomics world. Um, so I emailed Jerry and Jerry said, listen, I'm about to I'm about to leave um, Mizzou here in the next few years. I don't want to take you on as a PhD student, um, but you should talk to my former PhD student, Jared Decker, um, and, and Jared would would be a good home for you. So I, I ended up at the University of Missouri working with Dr. Jared Decker on, on one of his big, um, big USDA funded projects uh, that looked at local adaptation in beef cattle populations and had a really fruitful time there at Mizzou. Um, Jared, Jerry, and, and Bob, Bob Schnabel um, were sort of, I had three mentors that were really strong. Um, they, they gave me a great basis for, you know, basic genetics, um, really, you know, fundamental genomics stuff, but also um, Jared as an extension specialist got me out in the field a lot, talking to producers. Um, and, and I think that prepared me really well for, um, for my current position. Um, I sat about, uh, must've been three feet away from my, um, what, who would become my future wife um, there at the University of Missouri, Harley Jane. Um, and, and so Harley and I uh, bonded over our love of cows and genetics and um, she's got a good taste in music too. So it was, uh, it was, it was, um, it was sort of meant to be. So um, we still get to get to bounce genetics ideas off of each other over the, the dinner table tonight. So I'm, I'm thankful for the University of Missouri in a, a number of ways there. I spent the tail end of my PhD actually right before COVID-19 um, in Scotland at the Rosslyn Institute. So where um, Dolly the sheep got um, got cloned there initially. Um, so I spent some time in Edinburgh. I loved Scotland and, and we had sort of a handshake agreement with my advisor over there that I'd wrap up at Mizzou and then we'd, we'd move back to Scotland for three or four years for a postdoc. Um, but then this this Tennessee job came up and it was it was sort of my dream, right? I, I, I get to spend time researching. I get to spend time um, out with producers. And it was about four years earlier than I thought it would happen. So um, I, I had a bunch of advisors that told me that I'd be silly to say no. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful that I did because I, I get to get to live and breathe the beef industry, um, both here in the state of Tennessee and, and nationally. 
um, have a bunch of people that are are just excellent to to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, Charlie, I, I lucked into to meeting Charlie early on, and and I think that we've we've got a great thing going with a bunch of young faculty. But Charlie, in particular, um, we're we're an economist and a geneticist that can talk to each other in language that we both understand. We've got a we've got a common language of cow that that sort of runs between Charlie and I, and I think it it helps out a lot when you can do that um, because it's. It becomes really fruitful, the the applications, and um, I know we'll get into the the nuts and bolts of of what we worked on here at Tennessee. But uh, but yeah, having folks that um, again understand the the system um, in addition to their their specialties is is really important. I I just got done listening um, earlier this week to the episode that you did with with Paul Geno, and and they just don't make people like Paul anymore, right? I'll be the first to admit that. Um, the people that are, they're an expert in accounting, they're an expert in livestock and forage management, they're an expert um, in genetics, right? So I think that we're more specialized than we've ever been, which can be a good thing. Um, but understanding that 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 beef system um, and being able to collaborate with other folks is is more important now than it's ever been. And I, I think we're really lucky at, at UT to have a lot of those good collaborations happening. So that's really good. So how, Charlie, how long have you been at UT? And I guess, Troy, you've been there, what, a couple of years? Right at two. I started on January 1 of 2020. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I make the joke, it's, I've been here for a little over three and a half years, but in COVID times, I guess some producers only have seen me for the last two and a half years or two years, <laughs> just because I had to sit at home for a little bit. And uh, and so it was, it was an interesting time to graduate, and I guess, from an economist standpoint. No one predicted that, but, you know, that risk of, of that occurring, you know, sometimes it's a blessing in disguise. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Jorgensen Land and Cattle, helping cattlemen build better cow herds for over 60 years. For 14 generations, Jorgensen's have bred and selected with the same goals in mind. Consistency with balanced trait, maternally focused females, and bulls with rapid growth, feed efficiency, carcass merit, and fertility. For more information about Jorgensen Land and Cattle, the nation's number one bull supplier, visit jorgensenfarms.com and be sure to go back and check out the Jorgensen episodes to learn more about their history, family, and various Jorgensen programs. I know you guys are working on a lot of things and I know Troy, you, you know, you've obviously given, you know, presentations on commercial application of genomics and there's lots of stuff we could sure talk about. But, um, you know, one of the, the main reasons I wanted to, to get you guys on and, and we talk about a lot of historical stuff on here, but, but I just found a, a presentation I'd, I'd seen that you guys presented and some of the stuff you're doing with, um, with eye tracking software. And, and I thought that was really neat and really innovative. And I just thought our listeners would really enjoy hearing some of the stuff you guys are working on. And so, you know, how did you get interested in that and, and kind of tell us um, how it got started at, at AM. There's a professor there named Marco Palma. Sometimes, you know, as you take your your grad school journey, uh, you run into people that, you know, at the time, at face value, you might not think will have much impact on what you're doing. You know, Marco, Dr. Palma is he started as a specialty crop type economist, and then he really got into experimental economics, and and in particular, he started uh, getting and uh, you start using eye tracking as a method to accomplish his experimental designs or his experiments at that time. And towards the end of my grad school, uh, 
you know, tenure at, at AM, he opened up what is now known as the Human Behavior Science Lab or HBL, Human Behavior Lab. I got lucky enough to that last year where we had to take a class in in the econ department and it was, hey, we you gotta recreate an experiment and uh, and use a different technique or you know, kind of verify what the what another experiment had uh, found. And so that that turned into us rerunning the experiment. And I asked Dr. Palm, I said, hey, can we use the, the HBL lab in order to confirm or uh, you know, see if there's any differences? And at that time, he had, a, he had 17 computers up and running, I believe, and he had just opened it up. And, and to put that in perspective, at that time, he was the second largest eye tracking lab or you know, this type of uh, a lab of this nature only behind Disney Disneyland. And so, you know, Disneyland was using that to kind of see, uh, engage consumer experiences when they're walking through their parks and how did, you know, what did people see and, you know, how did they uh, take in the environment and what did they want to get rid of or what should they highlight more of? And, and so Dr. Palmer said, yeah, you can do this. And, and so we did it and, and we ran the experiment and, you know, did our classwork for, for that project. Uh, but then I started asking questions about what else could we do with this? Because at the time, uh, you know, the simple, in a, in a simple way of thinking, if you're thinking about you're staring at a desktop computer and there's a little bar on the bottom and, and it traces where your eyes go on this computer screen, uh, I was saying, hey, you know, what if we did stuff with bulls or, uh, you know, some type of, you know, cattle type experiment? And I explained, you know, kind of what I, you know, told you earlier. I've always been interested as as to why people uh, receive the price that they do. And so at that time, it was in around 2018, 2019, uh, we started kicking around an idea of uh, of running an experiment to try to analyze just why do people buy bulls, and that's just very something simple and generic. Well, then fast forward to uh, the beginning of 2019, uh, the job here at UT came open, and I started applying. And uh, you know, made the short run and, and was offered the job. Well, then that also took me out of the opportunity to run and design experiments with Dr. Palma in his lab. And so when I came to UT, the first thing I wanted to do was try to secure funding uh, for the equipment because the equipment itself and is pretty expensive. And so, for instance, we currently have eye tracking glasses here at UT. Those glasses are seventeen thousand dollars a piece before we can even you know get into the the annual licenses for those. If we take our units, for instance, you're talking anywhere between eighteen to twenty-five thousand a unit, which is a traditional desktop unit. And so, for me, a fresh professor, our startup packages are okay. But if anybody's been in academia, um, startup packages won't even sniff a chance to buy that type of equipment. And so, my first thing was, let me go out and try to find this equipment uh, because I want to run the experiments that we started tinkering with and kicking around the idea with. And so uh, through 2020, COVID, uh, you know, all I did was write a lot and try to, you know, secure funding. And uh, one, another one of our collaborators, uh, Dr. Liz Echocamp, that's in the animal science department at UT, uh, we had the opportunity to, to uh, get a grant to secure the eye tracking equipment. And so once we got the equipment, it was, all right, now we got the equipment, now what? And at that time, that's when Troy uh, started, uh, that's when he started at UT, and it just so happened to coincide perfectly with someone that I could collaborate with uh, that can help me think through the project because basically I was sitting here going, well, I'm the only one in my department at that time uh, that was active in the livestock side with my family. 
and, you know, thinking about genomically enhanced EPDs, uh, you know, just traditional EPDs, do, you know, physical appraisal by folks when they're looking at animals. And I've always wondered why people are willing to pay or willing to accept a certain price. That's such a, a complex uh, type of question. Troy came in and it was like, perfect. Someone that can understand and making sure that I stay within the boundaries of econ, but also make it applicable for producers uh, that Troy interacts with or, or myself. And so that's kind of where it started. Uh, was in 2021 uh, with our eye tracking equipment. And then since then, we've done numerous studies around uh, around the country. And we can, you know, we'll get into kind of each one, you know, I guess in particular and kind of what we've done with it. But uh, Troy, if you have something you want to add in there, uh, you know, you're more than welcome to. But that's kind of the where we started out with the eye tracking equipment and how we got to uh, to where we are at. Yeah, really interesting. I was I was wondering, Troy, sort of what what were your first thoughts? Because that'd be it's probably the first time you've you've you know uh, thought about this or heard about it, and and you're like walking in, going, "Hey, what what are we gonna do with this?" Yeah, yeah, no, no, Charlie. Um, early on during my time at, at UT, I started in in January of 2021. We maybe met at, at Joe Elliott's Bull Sales the first time I met Charlie up in Upper Middle Tennessee, um, and shortly after that, we we realized that we both sort of knew what we were were maybe talking about. And, and got together and Charlie started explaining the eye tracking to me. And I, I immediately had a million ideas, right? These are, these are things that as, a, as an extension specialist, as a, as a researcher, we're developing all these selection tools. And, and the beef industry is really unique, right? Uh, we develop a selection tool as an, you know, an independent breed association or academic group, but the the user is not us, right? The user is is the consumer, um, typically the commercial bull buyer. And and early on during my uh, my experience as a, a specialist, I'm out talking about EPDs, and and I realized that there's a big gap in in understanding about EPDs and indexes and genomics um, throughout the state. Uh, a huge distribution. Some people are are super in tune with it. Um, some people have have not got a clue, right? So I immediately saw this tool that that Charlie had um, an ability for him to answer some really fundamental econ questions. But for me, as a as an educator and a researcher, understand how people are actually using this information, and if there are ways that we can sort of take advantage of of human nature to present this stuff in a a little bit more palatable way. So uh, I immediately saw it as as super powerful, and and I think that about every time Charlie and I get together. Um, we we dream up some other new way that we can we can tweak one thing or another um, a, a whole new problem that we haven't explored. It's it's really just sort of boundless. Um, but but again, with the the beef producer, um, the commercial beef producer who purchases bulls, right? All my talks, I start out saying that this is like the riskiest decision that a commercial operation makes is is buying that bull. We try and mitigate that risk with selection tools in the form of EPDs. But but again, it takes using the EPDs, not just them. Them being there doesn't uh, inherently, I guess, mitigate risk, right? Um, understanding how folks use those and how we can make them uh, more usable, more easily understandable, I think, is is at the forefront. And and again, this eye tracking technology um, and some of the survey work too that that Charlie's group has done with us, um, I, I think, is is just super super applicable and, and relevant to our industry and and how we make genetic progress with the, the tools that we've got 
and how, as we think about introducing new tools, um, we can we can strategize and do that uh, in a way that's a little bit more targeted, such that their their adoption is a little bit more seamless. So uh, again, I I'm constantly amazed at these things, and and really glad that that Charlie um, decided to to pull me in here on the on all this eye tracking technology. It's it's fascinating stuff. And, and Charlie, so um, just to recap for for our listeners, I mean, there's two ways you're you're looking at tracking things. It's either looking at a computer screen or with with a set of glasses that that you can track the person's eye and vision and where they're where they're spending time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's exactly right. So if you you know to put that in perspective, if you have a a regular computer, uh, we have the ability to put a an infrared bar on the bottom that's magnetic that. Uh, we calibrate to each individual person, and, and and so when you're looking at the screen, it's tracking exactly where you're looking out on that screen. And then it, on the glasses side, if you think about just wearing a kind of a Ray-Ban set of glasses, uh, inside around the frame will actually have different uh, camera mounts that you can't tell are there. And then it also has kind of a mount on the on the left-hand side of that frame that's another type of camera. And what that does is it puts a circular um, kind of image that you can't see, but it, what it's doing is it's recording exactly where your pupils are looking and it has a circular type measure that when we download the data, that's what we see exactly uh, where people are looking with that circular um, type little image there. And and then so in the background that happens and the, and the reason why some of this is really, really expensive is that there are different type of, there's a company that uh, called iMotions that we use and it's one of the only ones in the country uh, that can take the computer style uh, of eye tracking and the glasses and actually can do measurements and metrics for us on the back end when we download it. And so it can it can record things such as gazing points. So if we were looking at an animal, you know, maybe it's, um, you know, at the front one third of it, it'll, you know, whether it's on a computer or with the glasses, we can see how long someone's looking uh, at that for, but also it can it'll measure how, you know, how intensive they're looking at it. And it'll get bigger the longer you stare at something. And then one of the coolest things for me, just from a research perspective, is pattern. Uh, it numbers every time you look somewhere, it numbers it in chronological order. So we can say when you first uh, start a study, you know, gaze point one is uh, where you start. And then if we get to a thousand gaze points, we know exactly the order that you went in throughout whatever you're looking at. And so in the in the eye tracking world, a lot of people have done this with, you know, displays at a grocery store or uh uh, displays at a at an event uh, for agritourism, for instance, or um, labeling is a, is a common one that gets used a lot, or specialty crops like flowers and stuff. And and so we just said, you know, let's do that, but with cattle. No one had ever done it before. And so, um, you know, for me, it was one. It was fun to do. Wake up and think about how to study folks's preferences for cattle, but also on the econ side, it's something that was really unique and novel. Uh, that allows us to stake a claim uh, in terms of the literature and moving forward. So um, you said Texas A&M was working on it a little bit before before you got into it at UT. Is there anybody else working on it that you know of uh, around the country? So uh, at that time, one of the people that we were kicking the idea uh, around with, his name is uh, Samir Husanov, and he was the lab manager then. Uh, he was actually a grad student. 
at that time. He was a PhD student. And now the, uh, Samir is now at the university or Auburn University. And if there's any Auburn fans, I just almost said University of Auburn. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't attack me on social media. But so Samir is at Auburn now and he is uh, often with us on these projects now. And so uh, for us, it was an idea that we started with a whiteboard uh, in the HBL lab, kind of kicking around ideas. And now we've done multiple studies together. And so, you know, Samir's been there lockstep and key with us on these projects just as much as anyone else. So what was uh, sort of what was one of the first projects that you and Troy worked on together and and take us through some of those? So in 2021, I had a grad student come in and his name's Seth Ingram. And and he's a cow calf kid from Northern Alabama, Blunt uh, Blunt County, Alabama, to be exact. And uh, so um, there's not a lot of people there. And, and and but he grew up as a cow calf kid. And we were I asked him. I said, Hey, you know, in your operation, what kind of information do y'all use whenever y'all are picking bulls? Is that something of interest for you? And he said, Yeah, that's it. You know, that's interesting. And so I pitched him the same idea, and, and like that, I pitched to Troy and said, Hey, we can do these studies. We got the equipment. Uh, you'd be the first one to kind of help us out. And uh, he said, yeah, let's do it. And so the very first study that we did, uh, we talk about EPD information. And so I wanted to you know, lay a foundation to build up off of that and say, OK, does information matter in the marketplace? And so uh, the first experiment we designed was um, we would take uh, participants at, at wherever we were at and we would place them as a buyer or a seller of a bull. and. Not only, you know, would they be buyer seller, each one of those groups would then would get put into halves where some folks got EPD information, some folks did not have EPD information. And so holistically, we were just trying to test if information mattered. But at the same time, there's a theory called optimism bias that occurs uh, in econ that says, you know, if if Jim Johnson is selling a Charlotte bull out of out of a sale that uh, he has that's the next great thing. He's probably going to want more for that bull than what someone like Troy or I, if we're in the marketplace, willing to buy or willing to willing to pay for. And so there's this notion of optimism bias out there that the seller uh, just wants their their value of it's always going to be higher than a than a buyer. And so then, while we're testing folks for this information, we can also test for optimism bias as well with the information. And so if everyone has information, does that help in the marketplace or does it not? And so. And so we were kind of tackling two types of questions there. And Samir had had done a previous study with uh, with thinking about wheat from a farmer and a bread maker. And so we said, okay, let's take all these ideas and put them together and make a, an experiment. And so that's what we did. And so the very first experiment that we ran was in the winter of 2021, going into 2022 at the Tennessee Cattlemen's Association uh, meeting. And uh, we did our experiment there, and 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 also the Alabama Cattlemen's meeting. Uh, that following spring in twenty in twenty twenty two, and we found that uh, one optimism bias is present when folks uh, don't have information. So if we have a buyer and a seller that don't have information, the optimism bias is there from the selling side. Uh, but then when we give information, the optimism bias disappears, and the folks that are using that information are more likely to be correct when estimating a bull price and. And so to kind of give a, a background story on that, one of the things that I've always wondered uh, outside of visual appraisal is if you do use EPDs and, and or genomically enhanced EPDs, or if you use some type of you know EPD ranking within a bull that you get when you see that EPD profile and then there's a ranking within the breed, 
uh, I wanted to know if that mattered. And so we asked every participant, do you use genomically enhanced EPDs? Do you, do you use uh, EPD profiles? Do you use the percentage rank? And do you use your eyes or visual inspection when you're making a decision on the bulls that you're buying or selling? And we got a mixed bag of results. And, and so the people that use all of those, uh, all of that information, we did find actually increased the accuracy uh, at the same time. And so for us, it was pretty insightful to see that if you are using that information, one, it helps you with understanding or, or being accurate with your price prediction for a bull that you're selling or buying. But at the same time, information does eliminate an optimism bias that we underlining have uh, when we're marketing our bulls from a selling perspective. And um, when we ask these questions, you know, how do you, do you use any of this information when, when uh, buying or selling a bull? Basically, 70% of folks use EPDs. 50% of folks use genomically enhanced EPDs. Uh, percentage rank went down to about 20% of all the folks we surveyed use that. But physical uh, inspection or visual appraisal, we were at a 98% clip. And so to me, that, in, that it tells us intuitively that physically, you know, when people are using their eyes, they are using their eyes to make a, an evaluation on the bull, which we, we would assume everyone does, right? I mean, if you think just, you know, if you were to sit around with a bunch of, bunch of, cow, uh, you know, cowboys or, or, any, or any, any folks that are buying, they're going to say, you know, if my eyes tell me, uh, I, I rely on my eyes and my gut feeling, and I really don't care what the EPD profile says. And that's, that's perfectly okay. Uh, but for the folks that are, are using the other information, uh, they're making better decisions, which to Troy's point earlier, can help alleviate some of the risk uh, that they're having. And, and so, you know, the folks that were signaling that they don't really use genomically enhanced EPDs or EPDs, to me, I look at that as just job security for folks like Troy. Uh, you know, there's always going to be someone out there that he can take the, the EPD Bible with and, and try to sprinkle some pearls of wisdom out. So, Troy, where did, uh, from, a, from an animal breeding standpoint, I mean, uh, give us your side of the uh, evaluation and, and what you kind of learned from a research study as well. Yeah, this, this first one, I think, was, was really helpful. It laid a foundation for, for stuff that we're, we're working on now and will continue to work on in the future. Um, just that, that sort of, you know, if you, and when, when Charlie says information too, he means EPD information. So the, the setup of these things, it looks almost identical to a, a DV auctions or, or whatever sort of an online auction you might use, right? We've got a video. These are real bulls um, that, that I went through bull sales in the Southeast and, and picked real videos out, real EPD profiles and real sale prices. Um, and so this is as, as close to realistic. We're not throwing, you know, little cartoon stick bulls up there and, and Troy's making up fake numbers. Um, these are, are real bulls in a real marketplace. So I think that's a, that, that's a big part, right? We're not, we're not making this, you know, this hyper scientific controlled thing. This is the, the real marketplace that we're putting people in. Um, and so, so again, the, the shocking thing to me was, um, that, that optimism bias that Charlie talks about, it's something that I think we all know, right? Your, your buyers have a really different evaluation of what your bulls are worth than you do. Um, and I think that that gap in, in our part of the world here in Tennessee and, and over into Virginia and across the fescue belt, um, our bulls are probably undervalued in, in real life. And we saw that, right, Charlie? I mean, I don't know what percentage of people end up underguessing the actual sale price of bulls. So, so that's one thing, right? We've got some work to do on really driving home the, the value of bull, right? 
but the people that were utilizing EPDs in their evaluation of these bulls, um, they were if they were purchasers, they were willing to pay more again because they were confident in that that more confident in that information, right? That gap between um, buyer and seller disappearing due to the information, I think, is a huge step for us as a, a segmented industry, right? We're not like chickens or pigs where there's a the person that's calculating the EPDs is making the selection decisions at the top of some pyramid, right? So any opportunity that we have to um, to make those little gaps disappear, to connect um, these these distinct segments of the industry, even if it is just with information um, about an animal's genetic potential, to me that's really really valuable. So um, that was th- that was interesting for me to see. And then as we as we started taking a look at some of the eye tracking stuff, uh, I think that's what really got us into this next um, this next line of work, which. Okay, so some people use information, some people don't um, in the form of selection tools. What information do they use, right? Because like Charlie said, 75% or whatever use EPDs of some sort, whether they're um, genomic enhanced or not, right? But which EPDs are they using? Um, and and my, my sort of hypothesis in, in talking to, to hundreds or thousands of producers across our state every year is that um, the EPDs that are getting used are probably birth weight and weaning weight. And um, on top of that, I'm really not sure about anything else. So uh, our next thought, and, and I, again, is motivated by, by me spending out my whole year talking about um, economic selection indexes and what a great tool those are. Aggregate all these EPDs, put an economic value on it. Does that help you make a, a better uh, you know, prediction of a bull's genetic merit? Um, in the context of this, right, could that help folks um, predict price better? But my my question to Charlie was like, hey, man, how how many people do you think are actually using indexes, right? Or how many people are looking past those first two EPDs that show up on the page? So that was sort of the the logical transition into, into some subsequent stuff that, that we've worked on this past year. So so as Troy mentioned, those EPDs uh, in the original study that we did, we saw that folks really only looked at those first three EPDs on a profile. So it's calving yeast, uh, birth weight, and weaning weight. And after that, they basically quit looking at them. And so that's what really gave us the, the intuition to say, okay, what else can we do with this? So that, that, that's kind of where really started the ball rolling for us. So what you end up learning from that? And what did you do with, with that information that moved into your second sort of project? So growing up, I mentioned I was a, a member of the TGSSA. And during that time in those junior programs, when you're competing in the summer, uh, you have a part of the cattleman's quiz that takes bulls and they ask you questions about different EPDs. So it, it, it forces the, you know, the juniors to look past just the, those first three EPDs. Uh, in particular for the Simmental Association, it would have been the API and the TI. And it was, hey, you know, if you're a commercial person and you have X amount of cows and you're looking for a bull that's going to be terminal, terminally, uh, uh, you know, oriented, which bull would be selected for, you know, and they would give us a, uh, a you know, some range of bulls and stuff you'd pick. And that's how you did the, the quiz. So knowing that in the back of my mind and then knowing with, you know, getting with Troy, um, that, you know, these indexes are there for a reason and, and it's meant to take a lot of information and try to make it as simple as possible for someone that probably uh, just wants a, you know, one line answer. What kind of bull is this? Is it a maternal terminal or kind of somewhat of a mixed type bull? And so um, knowing that we have that side of things and then knowing that we did the first study and it was people weren't looking at these EPDs, we said, well, people naturally read left to right, right? 
And as these EPDs have always come out, they always continue to stack the most recent one on the right-hand side. And then if you think about a sale catalog, and if you were to go pull a sale catalog, they rearrange some of this information all over the place. And it's kind of what, you know, whoever's putting on that sale thinks that's the layout they need to go with. Uh, but for me, it's also sometimes information overload. Uh, you know, if you're going to uh, a restaurant and you pull out a menu for the first time and there's just three pages worth of stuff that's in really tiny font and you're like, well, I don't know what to get. What do you always do? You ask the the waiter or the waitress, hey, what's what is what are y'all best at? Just give me that, you know. And so for us, we were thinking, OK, from a menu style way of thinking, what if we rearrange the EPD profile and we actually invert it to where the EPD indexes? would be on the left-hand side, and then all the other stuff that they normally go seeking out is on the far right-hand side. And so the hopes was that if if we could do that, one, how do people look at that information then if we flip the script on them? But also, what are the information-seeking patterns? Because they'll usually go start looking for exactly what they they feel most comfortable, comfortable with. And so it was like, you know, if we do this, could we actually induce people to look at the indexes and also their normal EPDs that they that they rely on, which then in return, could it actually help increase the accuracy of estimating bull prices? Because in the previous study that we that we did, folks were running at around a 17 percent clip at being right. And so that's not you know, that to me inherently that says, okay, if we're not able to estimate bull prices, at least, you know, at a one third of the time correctly. We could be overvaluing a bull or undervaluing a bull, uh, and you know, in both scenarios, sometimes there's un- unintended consequences with picking the wrong bull. And so, this past year, what we've been doing was uh, doing a, a study where we put folks all as buyers, and we said, okay, everyone's going to be buyers. We're going to give you a, a price range, so it'd be some something similar to uh, you know a market, you know, kind of a, a previous market report of. Hey, the bulls you're going to see are going to be within this range. So we kind of tightened that down because the first study thought some folks were, you know, up in arms that we had a seventeen thousand dollar bull in there. And you know, for us, we're not chasing chasing that exact price. What we're chasing is trying to understand information usage. So we said, okay, we'll at least tighten that boundary down. And then uh, what we would do is put people in groups that got EPDs. Half the people got EPDs normally. The other half got EPDs uh, inverted. And then at the same time, knowing that EPD rank could actually probably be a uh, be a better tool for folks versus like an accuracy number, we would give half of those folks in each group uh, the rank and other half no rank. And we wanted to see what happened. And so we did the study. We conducted the study at the Alabama Cattlemen Association again, and then also Tennessee Cattlemen Association again this past spring. And what we've been finding is that from the get-go, when we when we lay out EPDs normally, we get the same result. Uh, folks really just look at the bull uh, on the video, and and their eyes, you know, look all over the bull in the in the video that they're given, and they basically sit at home on the calving ease direct, weaning weight, and birth weight, and that's about it. Uh, but when we invert those EPDs, we're finding that folks are actually looking longer. Uh, because of that pupil uh, duration that I mentioned earlier, we're actually seeing that folks are actually sitting there for a second on those indexes and and actually studying those things uh, longer than they normally would have uh, compared to the contemporary groups. And so then they're actually doing their physical inspection with the video, uh, which we would ex- assume is going to happen. But then they're actually staring at the EPDs more, uh, those indexes more, 
And then, of course, they more times than not are actually going back to their their normal EPD profile that they that they will always rely on. Um, and so for us, we're seeing that, you know, if we flip the EPDs and we put those indexes on the front end, we're actually getting more people to look at those more than they probably wouldn't have uh, given a previous study. And then also just the folks that we talk with on a, uh, you know, at our meetings and producers that we talk with. Uh, and so we're actually seeing that that occurs. And then the the beautiful thing about it is we're actually seeing an increase in the accuracy. And so we've seen accuracy uh, go up across the board. And that's probably a, a function of the fact that we give them a price range. And so, you know, we're, we're, we, we tighten down those boundaries of being high or low to a small window. Uh, but we're actually seeing accuracy pick up for the flipped EPD. So, so the, the inverted EPD profile, we're actually seeing increased accuracy. And so for me, I'm also just happy because it's like, okay, something we hypothesize is actually showing that that's what's occurring. Um, and so for us, it was, okay, maybe this is something, you know, moving forward, you know, from a marketing perspective. It's showing that this stuff does matter uh, when you're marketing these animals. Uh, it's showing that if if they understand what they're looking at, it actually does help them from an accuracy standpoint. Uh, but at the end of the day, one of the other things that that I've started, you know, as we looked at the videos, we're talking about the ends. We have calving ease, birth weight, and weaning weight. And we have these indexes, and they constantly look at those on the ends. It's more surprising to me that in the middle they rarely even spend any time looking at the middle EPDs. And so anything from like milk or state EPD or um, any of the, the other indexes for carcass and, and yield traits uh, or carcass and, and uh, other terminal traits, they're not really looking at. And so some of that's going to be a function of, you know, cow-calf producers. Sometimes if they're not retaining ownership, they probably don't even really care about looking at that. So that's underlying in there. And that's some of the stuff we're putting in into our modeling from an analysis standpoint. Uh, because we ask them what kind of producer they are, and so that kind of helps us pin down uh, what we what we get in results. But um, you know, one is surprising to see that we can get those folks to look at EPDs, but at the same time, they don't really look at any any of the other EPDs uh, that are on that profile. And so, um, you know, that's that's opening my mind up to other different questions in terms of uh, future research, but. Um, you know, that's, that's where, that's the most recent one that we've conducted. And I think it's, it's something that we can think about in terms of, a, a, from an applicable standpoint, maybe we need to rethink how we, we, we present these, uh, this information on the catalogs, uh, whenever we're putting out, uh, you know, a bull sale catalog, you know, maybe there's information we actually can rearrange to our advantage, uh, from a marketing standpoint. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by BRC Brahmins. BRC has created their own legacy by taking their time-tested bloodlines, breed-leading performance, and classic style into uncharted territories of genomic excellence and premium marbling, arriving as the unmistakable leader of destination in the modern American Brahmin. For more information and their upcoming events, Visit brcutrer.com. That's B-R-C-U-T-R-E-R.com. Yeah, so Troy, you know, as someone who's traveling the state and other parts of the country, you know, teaching people about the EPDs and the value of indexes, I mean, what did you, uh, what did you learn from the study? Yeah, I think the, the, the really shocking thing um, is, is not so much these, the, even for me, the, the big picture trends, right? We've surveyed 
I mean, up to this point, hundreds of people, right, Charlie? But and so we have some some differences between the treatments. The really shocking thing is when um, our our colleague Samir can make these heat maps that really show, you know, how much time does a person's eye spend um, on any particular part of this little DV auction screen that we throw up. And, and it's it's really amazing to see the variation um, from producer to producer. They're at the same event, right? They might have the same exact number of cows, um, but their evaluation of a bull is so different, right? I mean, you'll have one. Um, if if Troy were to put it on, I'd my eyes would automatically go to those indexes. I'd check them out. Um, I'd zip back up maybe to calving ease. I'd pop over to stay. Um, and then I'd maybe go up and I'd, I'd do my phenotypic evaluation on the video that's playing there, right? Um, some people you'll see they spend forever on the page, but the, all they look at is the head and front shoulder of an animal. And I like, it, you know, I can't figure that out. So um, again, and everything in between those two, right? Um, but I, I think that that yeah, as we as we start talking more about using indexes, particularly for um, our commercial cow calf folks, there's a, a glimmer of hope there, right? That 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 flipped treatment, like Charlie said, they're not spending a ton of time looking at them, and they're maybe not even using them in their evaluation. Um, but we're we're drawing their eyes there, right? And so I think that there's there's the ability. Um, again, as we think about how as a seed stock producer, we lay bull sale catalogs out. As breed associations, when we think about um, what we print out um, on our on our websites, just under understanding where where and how people use that information. If you throw you know actual birth weight, actual weaning weight there, that's probably going to be the thing that they they look at first, right? Top and over to the left, right? We're we're human, and I think that that that's the important thing that I've stepped back and realized is that, you know, in theory, we can make all the tools in the world, but that adoption is just so reliant on how people process, utilize information. And, and I think it's, it's really encouraging to see um, in, a, in a concrete sort of experimental setting how, how people are putting that to use. Um, and again, it, it brings up more questions than it answers. But as a, as a person who, who thinks about these indexes and EPDs, um, the the biggest thing for us to do might not be in in slightly improving them with some crazy statistical model, right? Um, but it might just be in how we present these to our to our producers. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to put both of you on the spot just for a second. Then, so based on what you've learned, and I know we're we're still early on it, but based on what you you've learned so far, if you were designing a bull cell catalog for yourself. How would you how would you list the EPDs, the pedigree, the maybe picture, the the indexes, and and then the actual performance? How would you have you thought about that? You want to go first or me? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. And and this is something that even before I had met Charlie, um, I have I have my slide deck of when I'm talking about um, selection indexes, and I always have a, a seed stock consideration slide at the end. I have a picture of of the two two UT bull test catalogs and where we bury indexes there and all the other information, right? And and then I throw up a um, a screenshot of a Leachman bull catalog, right? And and again, um, everything it, it's never perfect, right? But I think that that Lee does a great job there. Um, I mean, it's size forty two font, red bold, dollar profit at the top, right? 
And so if I were marketing bulls based on an index and, and whether I have my own um, sort of personalized index like Lee does in, in dollar profit, or if I'm, you know, I'm trying to drive home, maybe I'm, a, I'm selling Angus bulls in Tennessee, dollar M would be would be right up there. Um, I think drawing attention to, to that in as big a way as possible would be useful. Um, and I, I do worry about the overload too. Um, we haven't explicitly tested that, but anecdotally, I look at a lot of bull sale catalogs and, and there's this fine balance between giving a customer all the information, right? Because we've literally found in this work that more information equals a more level playing field, right? That optimism bias disappears. But at the same time, if I've got, you know, 10 actual records, right? So actual performance, birth weight, yearling weight, weaning weight, um, all their carcass scan data, in addition to, you know, Angus is maybe up to 28 EPDs now, um, that gets out of hand really, really fast. And, and I think it makes us go back to our, our, our initial tendencies, which is I'll look at calving ease and weaning weight and maybe actual weaning weight or, or weaning weight ratio, and then move on, right? So if I were laying it out, big indexes, and then I'd, I'd pick out, I guess, for my customer base, and this is going to differ um, here in the fescue belt and southeast compared to out west, but um, highlight some of those, those big EPDs. Um, I'd have a sheet, I guess, um, a supplemental sheet with actual performance, but I think that a lot of times that clouds the waters a little bit. Um, we know that EPDs work better um, for making selection decisions than, than that actual performance, so I'd, I'd be more inclined to put some of that information um, in supplementary form, but really focus that catalog entry maybe on, you know, we got some cow family information, um, our indexes, a handful of the most relevant EPDs, um, and then put all the stuff in the um, in the supplement for folks that that need to dig into individual EPDs and whatnot. But I, I guess that's my my initial thought. Yeah, so I think you know, uh, kind of similar, and in, in, uh, I I like to see bulls re you know arranged for maternal base versus terminal base, and so you know I would one color I think does matter, and so if it's you know, if you're going to go with uh, more maternal base on the front end or terminal to have a color coordination that, you know, indicates what type of bull, you know, what group they're in. I think a handful of EPDs at the very front. So to me, I think indexes would be the ones I would pick on, uh, given if they're terminal oriented or maternal. And so, you know, Simmental world, I probably wouldn't put the TI on the, on the maternal group of bulls. I'd probably go API uh, and then also the indexes that that correlate to them. Um, you know, a handful of those the indexes, obviously, but then maybe the state EPD, for instance, uh, versus some type of carcass trait, um, you know, that, that doesn't really matter to those folks. And then the kind of the similar to the carcass, I mean, to the terminal oriented side, maybe it's a TI index with other uh, EPDs on from a carcass merit standpoint of that would matter to them. Um, I don't, I, you know, sometimes like when I was growing up, I always thought, you know, individual performance data um, on a bull was something that, that I needed. And then the more that I've, you know, studied this stuff and, you know, as I got older, I kind of feel like sometimes that those can be kind of misleading or kind of just causes some confusion. And, um, and so I probably would go have individual performance on a supplemental, uh, on a separate supplemental sheet. Uh, because if, if that person wants that information, they'll go find the information, uh, basically by us putting, uh, each individual, uh, performance measure on that bull, you're assuming that everybody wants that information. And I don't know if that's a strong assumption anymore uh, because you actually could scare off a potential person that's willing to pay for a lot, but then you, you, you're actually inducing some type of confusion in there and confusion leads to less dollars uh, or potentially could lead to less dollars. 
And so, you know, I think you could have a rock star bull, but then you you might put five different performance, individual performance measures from a gang test, and one of those could scare that person off. And so to me, I think from a selling standpoint, it's like, don't, you know, try to minimize running anyone off. You know, if they want to go find it, they can find it. And that, that supplemental sheet would have it. And so, you know, the picture of the bull, if we had a catalog, just, you know, a good picture. I don't really get caught up in, you know, where is the, the stocks at relative to uh, the body ratio? You know, some folks will put them in corn stocks that go up to the bottom of the belly sometimes. And, you know, maybe that's too extreme, but then sometimes they put them on ground that's elevated at like a 45 degree angle. And I'm like, well, what, is, what does that really tell me? And so I think, you know, flat ground, number one, and then also probably don't take the corn stocks to the belly uh, from a from a visual inspection standpoint, because we know visual is a, is a big indicator for these folks. And so uh, font size, definitely get it big. I've seen catalogs that basically take like a regular eight by 11 piece of paper and you fold it in half and it's just a skinny little sale catalog. And I'm not saying uh, uh, my eyes are bad by any means, but sometimes I'm like, like having to put it so close to my face, be like, what is, what font is, I don't understand what it's saying. And, and so, um, you know, and then, and then, the, you know, sometimes the description to me, it gets a lot of fluff and it becomes basically just what we consider cheap talk. And sometimes that also induces some of the, you know, someone going and, you know, I don't know if I want to buy this. And so I think having a good picture, the EPDs that are, that are more oriented to that, to that type of bull uh, and, and probably that group of bulls that you're putting together, a uh, good font size. You know, I think the parentage uh, does matter. Um, you know, the sire and the dam, I wouldn't go all the way back to, you know, grand, grand, grand maternal sire. You know, sometimes I see them where they go back five generations and I'm like, I, okay, that doesn't that tell <laughs> right. me, but okay. And so, you know, maybe, you know, just go to the, you know, one step behind, you know, the, the sire and the dam and call it a day. I think sometimes from a catalog standpoint and a marketing standpoint, you look at a picture and then you go to the video, uh, the video of that bull and they look two totally different things. And so from a, from just a marketing perspective, I would say don't doctor it up too much to where the, you, it, it doesn't even look like the same animal anymore. And so, and then I, you know, this is just for my Simitol friends. I would just say, as long as we put Simitol breed on there, it should just be able to sell itself. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a jab, was it, Detroit? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I got to fly that flag when I get a chance. <laughs> and I'd, I'd add a couple of things that I thought of as yeah. Charlie was talking there too. And along these lines of information overload, I'll see a lot of folks that will put a, an, an EPD accuracy attached with every EPD that they report. And, and to me, um, as long as they've got a little, um, you know, that little Zoetis or Neogen, this has been a genomically tested animal. We know that those accuracies, if they've got own records in there, are going to be pretty comparable for, for these young virgin bulls, right? So I'm, I'm not so worried about seeing accuracy there, as long as there's that um, assurance that, that the animal's been genomically tested. Um, but I, I think one of the most useful things that we can do is, as sellers of animals is, is add context in the form of a percentile rank. So we, we always talk about EPDs. We've got to be comparing animals. Uh, a number by itself doesn't mean anything unless we're trying to compare two animals in the same population. And, and I think sometimes, especially, you know, if we're looking at, at Jim's marbling EPDs, right, in Charlet, um, there might be a pretty big spread between two bulls, but they're both in the top 1% of the entire breed, right? So, so I think that the percentile rank on the EPDs that you do report in a catalog, that adds a lot of context, right? So if I'm excelling here, um, there might be a spread between the other bull that's on this page, 
but he's maybe the top bull in the entire breed. And this bull is, is also in the top 1%. So uh, again, percentile ranks for me, um, I look at EPDs all day, but I don't have every breeds memorized. Um, it adds a lot of context and, and it's, it's something that we've played around a little bit with in these experiments, um, seeing how people use that information, um, if they do or don't. And, and I think it's one of our more underutilized things, um, especially as we think about um, trying to, um, to place uh, an animal within an entire population or, or breed. So just the two more things that came to mind there. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you said the accuracy because my one of my first questions to Troy was, can you tell me the difference between a 0.3 accuracy and a 0.4 accuracy on an EPD and what does that translate to? And never really got a straight answer. And so I was like, you know, for me, accuracy, just don't even put that that stuff up there. Maybe, a, a, you know, the PC plus or minus, you know, maybe that for the, the actual EPD, but um, you know, Troy mentioned something about genomically enhanced. I, I don't think, uh, I think every bull that goes through a cell catalog, I don't, I don't see the the downside, uh, risk of, of getting everything genomically enhanced, uh, just because you're, you're providing the most clear picture that you can. And it kind of gives you some kind of cheap insurance to say, look, I sold you the bull and this is what it was when you bought it. And it was genomically enhanced instead of get, buying a bull that, uh, was not genomically enhanced. And then someone comes and says, Hey, you sold me, I was buying a, you know, the uh, heifer safe bull and it turned into a cow killer. And then you're like, well, it got genomically enhanced to me. That just creates bad juju and, and you don't actually get a returning customer uh, because at the end of the day, you're trying to get returning customers when you're in that, when you're in that market and selling bulls. And so anything that you can do to provide more information clearly, and also, you know, provide, you know, some type of, of assurance that, you know, you're in it for the right reason and you're trying to build a relationship with them. To me, that's also the name of the game when it comes to just, you know, business one-on-one relationships. And so uh, I think you have to have everything, uh, you know, tested. And and I think you, I think by not doing it, you're kind of opening up a Pandora's box of possibilities. Yeah, I tend to be, um, I tend to be the information overload guy, right? I, I want to provide as much information as possible. I mean, we're providing feed efficiency and docility scores and foot scores and everything else, you know, to customers because, you know, those, those are all depending on the customer, they may be interested in some of those. But it's curious, I think, the you know, what you're saying and highlighting specific things, especially the strengths of the animal is kind of interesting. I wonder, um, and real quickly, what is there any difference or have you looked at, at, at sort of horizontal EPDs versus stacking them? Uh, any difference there in how people look at it? Uh, you want to go get a, a master's at University of Tennessee, Jim, because... Uh... I mean, that's something I've, I've started thinking about because I was looking at some catalogs and how they rearrange them. And I'm like, well, maybe that's better. I don't know. But what we can test it and find out because, um, you know, if you take if you were to take the EPD profile, cut it in half and stack it on top of each other, you know, maybe that is easier. And maybe you cut it in half and then invert it to where the indexes are just underneath the, the CED and the, and the BW and the, and the WW EPD. So it's like you're right underneath it. You know, maybe that is you can accomplish both instead of having long. I don't know. And that's something that, you know, maybe that gets to a catalog, you know, formatting. And so, I mean, if you wanted to come get a, a master's with us, Jim, I'd happily take you on. Yeah, I'll tell you what, but when you get your master's student, I'll send you my catalog and <laughs> have them put it together. <laughs> that's that's probably been one of the, the funnest things with this whole project is our, you know, we don't have a PhD program here here in our department. And so uh, I rely on a bunch of master students and, and undergraduate students, and we got I have four that work for me uh, from an undergraduate perspective, and then I have three grad students, and 
um, to me, it's it's kind of been fun for them to also think about stuff just like what you named in, in terms of, you know, how should we lay this out then? If, if you're saying we need it, how should we do it? Well, let's test it. So, um, so kind of as we wrap up here, what, what, uh, you know, dreaming, and I think we all, we all do that and, and just conversations after y'all's presentation that, that, I, that I watched, you know, with other people just, I mean, the applications of this are just almost endless. I mean, where do you guys see this going? I mean, what are you kind of looking at next and, and, um, and, you know, just give us sort of uh, your vision for, for how we might apply this in the future. I think how you mentioned the, the, the options are kind of endless and we're just picking on one small segment, right? We're just picking on bulls in a, in a market, the bull market. I think the next logical step is taking it to the female side. You know, I, I often, from an econ talk perspective, I often say, you know, um, the buying a bull for this season, you know, has lingering effects. And sometimes I think producers and myself included, you know, we forget that uh, being in the cattle business is a long run game. It's not just uh, year to year or marketing season to marketing season. I mean, if we're keeping replacement females, we're building up a herd over time that uh, we hope that if we make enough correct decisions over time, uh, the reward becomes that much uh, better. Uh, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15 years from now, and, and we keep these females. Well, if the bull has immediate impact, you know, in the short run, and, and, and if we hold that constant, well, then the flip side of that is the female side. Um, how do we use information uh, from a replacement female or, you know, seed stock perspective in order to make a herd that um, one is genetically powerful, uh, but also can satisfy us from just a basic farm management perspective of a of efficient female that goes out, has a calf every year, does her job, weans off the correct weight uh, that she needs in, in order to make be profitable. Uh, because at the end of the day, for me, my ultimate goal is to, from a research perspective, is to try to figure out everything I can, and it'll never happen, but I'm, I'm going to chase it, is to figure out everything I can to help a producer be more profitable at the end of the day. Um, because... The cattle business is already hard enough and the variables that are out there are so hard to, to deal with. I want to try to use everything I can in, in my research ability to help understand how can we make them more money. And so I think bulls is a logical step. Females is another logical step. Um, there's been a lot of literature that's been done historically, historically using um, the the superior data, uh, the video sound stuff of that nature and what brings premiums for feeder calves. I would love it to sit down with a bunch of cattle buyers, put these glasses on them and or put them in front of a, a you know, the computer. And let's just really test, you know, do you even really care about uh, the horned or not or if they're if they're castrated or not? Is it really just volume? Is it quality? Um, we tell people all the time black hide pays, you know, let's you know, let's let's test those types of things out because uh, that paycheck that comes in, uh, you know, that whether you're marketing uh, that one time a year because you you know you have a tight calving season and you, and you're doing everything from that perspective or you're the person that uh, you know has a bull out uh, 12 months of the year and you have one breeding season for that 12 month you know duration but you know when you're getting that check you know what kind of goes into that there's so many variables and so um, there's other things we could do from a farm management perspective in terms of how do you analyze um, you know a soil, um, or a feed tag, not necessarily a soil result, but a feed tag, for instance, you know, what are you looking at that we can help you make a better decision? And so, uh, you know, I think the, the, there's so many things we could do with just from a farm management standpoint that we could also tackle. Uh, but, you know, the big three, obviously, are bulls, females, and those feeder calves. 
Yeah, I, I think Charlie nailed it there. And, and it's really sort of uh, similar to the genomics thing, right? Our our first stab here is is in this bull market in the seed stock world. Um, but the the rapidly expanding stuff is, is, again, we're getting more and more information, whether it's an added value program, whether it's a genomic test um, on these feeder cattle, right? And in that marketplace, trying to understand it better, um, using these tools, I think, is is something that can be really, really valuable for us. Um, the one other one that I'll, I'll tack on that, that Charlie had a student work on at one of our research centers this summer um, is using some of this eye tracking technology um, to is demonstration in the context of low stress cattle handling. Um, so these glasses on um, Kevin Thompson, one of our research center directors um, and, and really, really great a stockman. Right. He works everything on horseback. And, and so what Charlie's team did, they stuck the glasses on Kevin, gave him a microphone and asked him to narrate what he's seeing. So uh, I think these things are, are in addition to us understanding what's going on, a really, really great teaching tool, right? So we, um, we stuck them on, uh, I teach um, part of the beef production class on genetics. They had a lab. And so we went into the arena, threw it up on the big screen and, and I asked students, okay, so I've spent the last week and a half or whatever talking about indexes and EPDs and all that. Let's put it to the test. Um, and so again, I think these things are great teaching tools, um, narrating over top of that, me physically being able to see how I walk through information, um, low stress cattle handling, facility design. Um, I, I think there's there's a ton of opportunities from, uh, again, from an economic standpoint, but also just from a, a management um, understanding that that people are are going to be the ones that are are working these cattle, dealing with these cattle, looking at these cattle. Um, so if we can get a better understanding of that with the technology, I I think it's a, a super invaluable tool um, across the the beef industry and and it's spilled over into into other industries. I know that the the glasses get to work out on ornamental plants and dairy products and all sorts of stuff. So um, again, we're just lucky that we get to steal them away. And and Charlie likes beef cattle enough that. Um, um, those are priority 1A for all the, the eye tracking stuff. I make the joke that getting those glasses and securing them is just, you know, it's a, you know, in the grants that we do all the other stuff and, and kind of, you know, we have a hay study, for instance, that we've been doing in all the dairy stuff. That's just so we can, I, it supports my cow habits of wanting to do research <laughs> and, and, and answer those types of questions. And there's something else, you know, he was, he mentioned, Troy mentioned, you know, how we've used it in the, in the classroom. I think uh, something that's logical from an application perspective that I've started tinkering with is uh, uh, livestock judging. Um, you know, how how does that person, you know, if you have a class of four, how do you rank that? How do you, what are you looking at to get to that rank? If uh, if you're judging a show and um, I haven't done it yet and I, I've tinkered with it and I've played with it and I think I can do it. But uh, when next time I judge a show, I might just roll up with the glasses and put them on and I'll just judge the show as I see fit, you know, as I'm, as I'm on the mic and uh, we'll see what I've been looking at whenever I'm making my decision. And uh, you know, I think, you know, judging is so subjective, this kind of puts some objective objectivity to it. And so, um, you know, it'd be kind of interesting just to see on that, on that front, just what do people look at? Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing. I, didn't, I know um, 
my uh, nutritionist friend rode with me, uh, Dr. Ty Davis at Purina, and and his mind was working. He was like, "All right, what do we hi- highlight on mineral labels, and where do we put where do, in, in a storefront? You know, where do we put you know certain products versus others? You know, with with Purina and just different things like that were fascinating. And I, and I was also thinking, if I were the judging coach at University of Tennessee, I would definitely have it on my kids. Right? I'd be like, "All right, this is where I want you to look first. This is where I want you to look second, and train them." you know, sort of how to evaluate those cattle and that step-by-step process would be, uh, would be pretty cool too. So yeah, I was, I was thinking of lots of different opportunities, uh, as well. And I think, I think it's, I think it's, there's lots of opportunities and you guys are, are so enthusiastic about it. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the presentation and, and, uh, you know, if our, if our listeners wanted to, uh, to reach out to you guys or, or learn more about it, um, you know, how would they do that and, and where would, uh, where would they do that? Yeah. So if anybody, um, needed to get a hold of me, the, the easiest is always my email. So, uh, if you, if you go to our, uh, University of Tennessee Ag and Resource Economics Department, AREC, UT AREC, just Google UT space AREC. Uh, just go scroll down and find my email, cmart113 at utk.edu. You can always get a hold of me. Um, I do have an office phone that's listed to me, but in, in full disclosure, um, that thing doesn't do a good job of keeping messages. And uh, I think it's a little older than me. And so it's it's probably time for it to kick the bucket. But, uh, you know, that's the easiest way is always email. And then if you're on Twitter or Facebook, um, I'm actually also the center director for the UT Center of Farm Management. Uh, and so we actually have, uh, I guess, well, Troy, I hope we figured out if we're going to run with X.com or Twitter. I know, you know, we go stay traditionalist <laughs> and run with Twitter because if we are, then you just go to UT Center of Farm Management on Facebook and Twitter and uh, you can find our pages there. And then my personal page is uh, Farm Management. So F, so Farm, F-A-R-M-M-G-T uh, on Twitter. And that that's my Twitter handle. And um, we often post stuff on there too of, of what we're doing and kind of what we're up to and uh, any research or extension. Um, you know, this is part of my research and extension program, but we also do stuff in the livestock markets and meat markets and uh, other farm management things. So there's always stuff that we're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. I still haven't figured out my office phone, but uh, T-R-W-A-N <laughs> at U-T-K.edu. Um, I'm pretty good at answering email, even better at, at answering tweets. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sticking with Twitter, Charlie. I haven't gotten into X. <laughs> okay, we're going to be traditionalists. Okay. Yeah, at, at Troy N. Rowan um, on Twitter, you can see a, a picture of me with a big old pan of pepperoni rolls that they sent me home with from West Virginia. Or- <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <laughs> oh, that's great. We might go up there and talk now just to get pizza rolls. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you have to come to a football game. <laughs> well, that's great. I really appreciate your all's time, and and we'll try to put all that stuff in the show notes as well. That uh, that if people want to get a hold of you and, and any uh, prospective master students that um, are looking for something to study to get a hold of you as well. So, uh, really appreciate your all's time. It's really fun stuff, and and. Uh, and we'll look forward to having you on at some point in the future and, and learn some more about what you guys are doing. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. For our producer, Carlos Cheraboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page, and at brandsandbarbwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbwire.
Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Jmar Genetics. Visit jmargenetics.com for more information about our annual Charlet Bull and Female Sales, where we offer the most comprehensive information available on our bulls, including feed efficiency, performance testing, ultrasound, foot, and docility scores. Jmar Sired Bulls are topping sales across the U.S. and Canada. Check out jmargenetics.com to find the right Jmar Herd Sire for you.